always possible in Christ's name we pray amen I want to admit that I have just really uh, I'm tired this morning <laughs> um, but it's been a good few weeks it's been a good few months actually and that I really believe God is moving and doing great things in our hearts here uh, just the conversations I'm having with people at church and it God is doing something great in in everybody's life it just seems like there's there are things that are being churned up, but it's all good stuff, and, and we're all responding well. So, uh, good job in that, all right? Um, and I, as your pastor, uh, also feel like I'm really being challenged. I'm really, this sermon series, you, <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I never assume that you think this is good stuff, or you know, that you, you're like you know, bored or whatever, but I'm not bored. I'm having a really good time going through this stuff. I am really being challenged myself in my own private life of spiritual formation and how do I do this better and all that kind of stuff. So be, be excited at least that <laughs> I am going someplace. I'm excited about this. So, um, so we took a little hiatus for two weeks uh, for Palm Sunday and Easter, those pesky holidays. You have to get them out of the way, right? You know? Um, but they, you know, we took a little hiatus from our sermon series, uh, Ruined to Renovation. There are still binders over there if you need a binder and you want to follow along. Remember, you can print out the questions on Monday, starting on Monday following the sermon and print it out and put it in your binder and use it as a quiet time and things like that. Um, so that's available. Um, but we, we took a little break and today we're back at it. Uh, Ruined to Renovation, we are, so far we've done 11 sermons. And this is our 12th. Um, and in that, we've looked at the six dimensions of human makeup. All right? And we're, we're, remember, we were kind of walking through Dallas Willard's book, uh, Ruined to Renovation. And it's good stuff. And so if you want to read that along with this sermon series, by all means, I would encourage you to do that. But those six things are thought and uh, feeling and choice and body physical body, and our social context, the, the social connections that we have, and soul, which kind of encompasses all of those six things together in the person, right? The human, the human being. And all those things have their own things, like thought has those images or concepts or judgments or, or inferences. Choice has will and decision and things like that. Um, so all those things, we've explored that. We've also looked at what undermines uh, or takes the feet out from underneath the human makeup, you know, as our development into what God intended us to be, which is our propensity towards self-worship. It's the original sin of Adam and Eve, right? It's putting myself in the place of God. Uh, is it's wanting to 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 tell myself and tell you how I how best I will live, you know, that kind of thing. Um, we've we've looked at the foundation of heart renovation and or change or transformation, which is. At the root of things, it's, uh, you, you could use the word surrender. Uh, surrender to Christ. It's self-denial. It's the, the dying of self. It's, it's uh, of giving. It's that, that, that our giving in our whole lives to the Lordship of Christ in our lives. And that's what He calls us to. It's, um, it's losing our lives to find our lives back in Jesus, right? As He says in uh, Mark 10.39 and also in other places in the Gospels. So we've, we've looked at all that, 11 sermons, sort of like a college course, there you go, bang. Now, today, we are at our signature verse for the day is 2 Corinthians 3.18, which says, and we all, us collectively, 
who with unveiled faces, think back to Easter, right? We'll come back to that in a minute. Who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So a seemingly simple verse that you might just kind of read and gloss over, but it says a great deal if you think about it. Unveiled faces, right? What does that mean? It, it refers to that divine movement in, that has to happen in us, right? That divine movement that has to happen in order that we would be woken up from our spiritual death or spiritual slumber and have the means to grasp hold of and, and not only understand but also assimilate uh, the scriptural truth that God leads us into. Think of Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 4 and 5. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. He did that to us, right? And that had to happen to us. Think about Jesus' talk with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And he says to Nicodemus, one of the leaders you know, in the whole um, religious system, he says, you've got to be born again. You've got to be spiritually born again. Right? And that's something that has to happen to us. Think also of last week at Easter when we talked about that curtain in the temple when Jesus died on the cross. That curtain in the temple is 60 feet high. I think it's 30 feet wide, 4 inches thick of woven yarn and all that kind of stuff. was ripped in two from top to bottom. Um, that is pretty incredible. And, but it was ripped in two, opening up the way for us to experience God's presence, uh, experience life in Jesus, that kind of stuff. And, and we know that Christ's redemptive work on the cross did that for us, right? So it's pretty exciting. So that's unveiled. That's what unveiled faces means uh, in, in the nutshell, right? And then contemplate in that, that verse. Uh, if we take that word contemplate, that's pretty important, which refers to our active role. It's something that we do. Right? It's our active role in spiritual formation where we are informed by and we are led by the Word of God. That we are literally uh, making the choice and the effort to walk through that open curtain into the, the Holy of Holies, into the most holy place with Christ, basking in the presence of God through, through the living Word that is revealed to us. That we would spend the time doing that. And we'll talk about that a little bit more today. Uh, and as a result of all this, we are transformed into His image, right? And that refers to the result of the Spirit's work in our lives, the Holy Spirit working in us and through us in conjunction with those two other things. So we, what we see is that there is a direction, there is a goal, there is a standard, and that standard is Christ, right? That is the standard. The process of spiritual formation towards Christ-likeness, moving towards becoming more and more and more like Jesus every single day of our lives as people of God, right? Romans 12, 1 and 2, which we looked at extensively in the past two sermons, is quite a lot like this verse, right? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is something that we do actively right we're offering ourselves to him and then uh, it says do not conform to to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and so on and so forth right and then we know what god's will is his good pleasing and perfect will so having said all that what we're saying here is that this series concerns uh spirit our spiritual formation at a very very deep deep level uh the act of putting on 
the character of Christ in our lives and being challenged towards that. Becoming like Jesus in all six aspects of the human makeup. Not just three, not just two, not just one, not just five, but all six uh, aspects of the human makeup. However, we have to trust that spiritual change, spiritual transformation can actually happen in us. Let me say that twice. We have to trust that spiritual formation can actually happen in us. It's hard to speak hope sometimes into a hopeless society because you don't have anything to base it on, right? Last week we said at the end of the service that doubt and distrust have been elevated to virtue and value in American society. Doubt and distrust have been elevated to the level of virtue or value in American society. And those two things, doubt and distrust, basically communicate a disbelief, a choice of disbelief, right? Uh, Our current worldview dictates that we doubt and we distrust, right? Listen to the conversations out there. You'll understand that once you start to listen that everybody's kind of filled with this doubt and this distrust. Nobody trusts anything that's said anymore, right? But, but our current worldview dictates that we doubt and distrust that spiritual formation can even occur in our lives. We may have a hard time even seeing this in our leaders or seeing our leaders have any success in this area. From sexual misconduct to the syncretization of politics and gospel to financial mismanagement in the church. We see those things and it's discouraging. The church talks a lot about life change, right? But sometimes we feel like we can't see very, we, we see very little evidence of it. Leaders, both clergy and alike. Some of you are leaders in the business world or in the academic world or whatever. But leaders, both clergy and alike, and not just leaders, but everybody, right? Who profess them to know and to, to be growing in maturity of Christ have a responsibility to the body of Christ and not only to the body of Christ, but actually to the, to the communities that they live in to privately pursue and change in, 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 into Christ-likeness to see that happen, right? To make choices to, to go towards that. Although we have grace for our humanity too, we're all like not perfect, right? You want your pastor and your surgeon to be a little confident, right? You, you actually want your, your, your surgeon to be a little arrogant, you want your pastor to be confident, right? You don't want your, pa- you want your pastor to be humbly confident. You want your sur- surgeon to be a total jerk, right? Because you just want, you want the guy to be like, oh, I can't make a mistake, <laughs> you know, and not make a mistake, actually. But anyway, but we pastors, we do heart surgery. That's what we're doing, you know, not physical heart surgery, but that's what we're doing. Um, James 3.1 says, and it's a frightening verse for us pastors and us leaders, not many of you should become teachers, <laughs> my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. I mean, that, that verse could keep me up at night. You know what I mean? Like, oh gosh, what did, I, what did I get myself into, right? There are standards, there are expectations in the Christian life. 
And in a world where every kid gets a trophy, that's t- standards are unpopular, right? We don't like to hear that. And the sad fact is that when Christian leaders fail in large measure, it isn't just merely about what they did, the action. It's about who they are, right? It's about who they are internally. That internal person which led to their outwardly public fall from grace. It's not just a moralistic issue, but a spiritual formation issue. It's not just about behavior on the outside. It's about our hearts, right? And the question arises, whenever we see a major leader fall in the Christian world, can we trust anything that they've said up to this point? Right? Suddenly our doubt and our distrust get bolstered. And we don't want to listen to anybody else after that, right? And the answer to that is complicated. Since yes, yes, there are things that we can trust that they've said to us. No matter who they are, right? Not all that they've said to us is so intimately tied with who they are as a person, but rather it's revelatory proclamation of God as derived from the Holy Scriptures, right? They're just conveying messages. They're conveying something uh, of truth in in the Scriptures. Yet, in the same breath, we also have to admit who they are matters. Who they are matters. I can't be running around on my wife and then coming up here and preaching this stuff. That doesn't work, right? So we need to know and see in our leaders examples that true, true change can really happen. Leaders should not only convey truth in verbal proclamation, but live Jesus' truth internally, privately, behind closed doors, in their own heads. What is their spiritual formation process? And that's where God is challenging me lately. What is my spiritual formation process? How are we pulling others upward along into that journey? Do we have integrity? Right? Christian leaders should be like backpacking guides leading us up a mountain. You wouldn't hire the 400-pound, two-pack-a-day smoker to lead you up the mountain. That's not your backpacking guide, right? That's not the guy you want. You want somebody that is at least moderately physically healthy uh, to guide you and to encourage you into going on the hike in the first place. Then a person who trains you on what's helpful to bring, you know, making you consider what you think is good to bring as opposed to what you really need on the trip. And once you're far enough into the, the trip, uh, they gently help you realize that there is no turning back now, no matter how hard this gets, that so you got to keep going. Am I right, Brian? Yeah, Brian knows that, right? <laughs> um, and they, they need to encourage you that you can make it when you don't think you can make it. They need to let you realize that rest is only brief and rest is only for the purpose of continuing the journey. That there's a schedule to keep and that, there's a, that we allow them to set the pace and, and they know where to find water and they know how to uh, you know, fix a tent and they know how much you should eat and calories that day and all that kind of stuff. And if you need a helping hand or to lighten your load, they're there to help you do that. 
There are stations on through hikes, like I'm going on the Colorado Trail this summer, 500 miles, I can't wait, but there are stations where people will actually help you, like after you like did all this pack, you get to the, you get to like 100 miles in and you're like about to die, and you, you can sit down with somebody and they will, they'll, they will go through your pack and they'll say, you don't need that, they don't need that, you know, that, that $80 stove you bought, you know, throw that out, you know, things like that, you know, this is what we do. They, if you're complaining, if you're just, you know, complaining, they're there, they're there to give you a proverbial kick in the butt. And outside of the snafu of them being snake bit, bit or falling off the mountain, you know, uh, you have to be able to trust that they can actually make the journey themselves, right? And it's not that we deem Christian leaders perfect people, because they're not, Right? But they should be progressing forwardly and not put into the position of leadership until they've reached some level of spiritual maturity in Christ. They should. Not, and not just even in church work, but you know, maybe in other places as well. Though that is very hard to measure. Isn't it? It's really hard to measure. Especially in a society with doubt and distrust so prominent that everyone's an expert. They're very proficient at play acting, at hiding, at sensationalism, at advertising, is only putting forth the face that you want them to see. False or not. That guy's kind of scary looking, right? Lacking integrity, but looking good. A conglomeration of ad men. People who know how to present, but are shadow puppets otherwise. It's like our mountain guide hiding the fact that he had really bad knees and emphysema and suddenly we're out stuck in the outback and everybody's got to carry him down the mountain, right? And you're like, what in the world? It's easy to see if someone is at least moderately physically healthy on the outside, but spiritual health isn't as easy to see in a society, especially where where distrust and doubt are so prominent. It's just not that easy. Gosh, the guy's got dreadlocks. How spiritually mature can he be? <laughs> you know, some of our some of our standards are the out, outward things. We need to start asking the right questions. Uh, recently, my friend's daughter—this is an example—was uh, a part of an organization which was developed to do good in a certain part of society. I won't tell you the name. And she later found out that the director, a very charismatic man who seemed very capable, was pocketing the cash. And he was lying about the donors that he said were, was giving, were, were giving money. And so she demanded transparency and accountability, but she didn't get it. And she's young, and I, I hate to say it, she's a woman that probably didn't do her much good in, in the whole trying to get what she needs. In this whole situation, the guy was kind of a jerk. And the end result is that she retreats into a deeper shell of distrust and doubt. And emotionally, she's internalizing all this stuff to the point where she is experiencing physical ailment herself. That's what this did to her, right? Allegations of inappropriate behavior and sexual misconduct just came out this week about Bill Hybels, who is the pastor of, um, what is it? Willow Creek <laughs> Community Church in Illinois, one of the largest evangelical churches and the most influential evangelical churches in America, does the Leadership Summit every year. A lot of people go to that, things like that. 
allegations, which I have to be fair to say that he is adamantly denying, but, and they still need to be explored, but they're out there nonetheless. That doesn't help us, right? I personally was very close to the Bennett family, whose father embezzled $500 million from Prudential in a Ponzi scheme in the 1990s, and he spent 16 years in jail for his actions, but not until he bankrupted many a trusting Christian ministry. And if you go to my uh, chiropractor, he goes there. He's a really nice guy, despite all the stuff he did. Just realize that you might be talking to the guy. Um, Because I know some of you, I've led you to my chiropractor. He's awesome, by the way. Um, that That was insane. It, it, it devastated people, right? Um, I've also sat under two pastors myself who had inappropriate relationships with women in their church and leading to large church splits and devastating many lives out of the, in the wake of them. Now, God has done something with those church splits because they've planted other churches. It's not how we want to do church planting, <laughs> but it, it has happened, Right? The worldly humanistic culture in which the church finds itself swimming permeates the community of faith, leaving us with communal practices which don't lend themselves to openness and growth and transparency and vulnerability. They don't. We create our own monsters, right? We create our own monsters when we put people into positions who aren't yet ready for it, Or don't allow them the freedom to openly fail and repent and move forward. When we don't know their spiritual formation process. We create a deviant system of stress when we don't all commit ourselves, everybody in the church, not just leaders, but everybody in the church, commit ourselves to fostering a culture of healthy spiritual formation. Which, by the way, I want to applaud you. I think we're going that way at 6-8. We are doing well. So I don't want you to feel like I'm coming down on the church. I'm not. I'm actually really pleased with where we're going and what, how people are responding. People are growing like crazy here. But if that doesn't happen, it's a recipe for disaster given time will only fall apart, right? It'll only fail us. We've said often in this series, and we'll continue to say this, that real internal change bleed outwardly into public Christ-like life. In other words, real heart change. Behavior really changes when our heart really changes. That I'm not just gritting my teeth saying, oh, I'm not going to do that. But I'm actually saying, oh, Lord Jesus, I want to walk well. Right? That We allow Jesus to change our heart. But without the continual walking out of the process of inner spiritual transformation initiated and sustained by the grace of God, this change is impossible in us. And the facade will eventually fall, right? So the shallowness of a Christianity a mile wide and an inch deep has become the norm in America. At different times, it's stronger, uh, you know, but it has become the norm. And, and it's one in which we'll always fail as followers until we take spiritual formation seriously inside the church walls. We've got to go for depth. An ocean so shallow couldn't sustain, let alone team with life. 
And nor can shallow devotion and shallow practice towards Christ sustain and foster true spiritual change in the believer and likewise our churches, right? So this is how important it is. So 2 Corinthians 3.18, right? First let me say, the church is only as healthy as its individual members. It really is. And this is not to make people feel badly or guilty, but it's a, a good-hearted challenge to step up to the great spiritual formation process that God wants us to be a part of. To be brave in it, right? So 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Right? Amen. That's where we're going. That's what we want, I hope. I hope that's what you want. To be transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. Day in and day out, I'm getting closer and more like Jesus, right? But to get there, firstly, we must believe that it's actually possible in us. Because I don't think we all do. Although we may not see great examples around us all the time, I want to challenge that it is possible in us. To see God actually change us and us to move forward. So this first issue of doubt and disbelief and distrust can create in us a blind satisfaction of, re, uh, of low results, right? Or a blindness to, to the actual good that is going on. Sometimes we get so caught up in the leader that's fallen, we've forgotten that there's a bajillion leaders out there that haven't fallen. They've been leading their church as well, Right? So, you know, but we look on the many failures or the shallow living out there of Christian life in, in, in regards to the Christian life, and we think, well, it's only natural. It is what it is. It, that's, that's the way it is. It'll always be that way, right? <clears throat> For instance, I've counseled many a Christian wife who've said, well, I just figured all men look at porn. I just figure they can't control themselves. That's what they do, right? They're guys. No, <laughs> no, right? Neither spouse really wants that burden to live under that burden, but they, they, they have this thing in them that says, well, the vile body needs what the vile body needs, or the vile body wants what the vile body wants, right? Not at all a healthy view of the body, a spiritual view of the body, not at all a healthy spiritual formation view at all. It's the frog in the pot illustration, which I'm sure you've heard of. Boil a, water, a, a, a pot of water, throw a frog in that pot, and he'll jump right out, right? Because it's boiling hot. But put a frog in a pot at room temperature and slowly bring it to a boil over time, and he won't move. He'll slowly boil himself to death. That's my pot at home. I tried it this week. It works. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> He was tasty. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, I couldn't wait to say that this morning. Oh, shoot. <laughs> but, you know, we've grown up in these shallow systems sometimes, uh, slowly boiling away our clarity and our resolve and our conviction, right? That's really what we, we, we do. And as a result, it's hard to see the spiritual life being any other way than what we see around us daily. So, what happens? Acute failure and dichotomous living 
become commonplace. They become the norm. And then what happens? Surprise at that goes out the window and expectation of it settles in. And that's the miserable center view. The miserable center view of the Christian life makes two assumptions. Number one, it makes too much, and I've preached pretty strongly this, this in the past weeks, it makes too much of the idea that we are depraved. It misses the possibility of divine change in the human heart. Actually, one of you confronted me about that in past sermons. And I said, wait, wait, we're getting there. Right? Number two, it assumes the physical, bo- the physical world and the physical body, this thing, this world, are the real problems. That if we could just get away from this, we would be, the person is disconnected from the body. That's in our minds we think it is, right? The once we shed this mortal coil, then we'll be a golden view of spirituality, right? Once we can just get away from this vile body. We, we like to say that Hitler and Mother Teresa were all in the same playing field. And in human nature, they were. They, they were both born into original sin. That's true. Both were depraved in a sense. Uh, and we tend to think, well, if it weren't for God, and it weren't, weren't for the situations that he placed them in, Mother Teresa could have been just as vile as Hitler. And this view is, that we're stuck with this vile nature until we pass on to new life beyond death when we shed this body. Understandably, we'll fail miserably, we think, in the meantime, unless God intervenes, unless God does something. And we're all just sinners contained within this you know, evil mortal body, and what more can we expect of ourselves, right? My husband's just going to watch porn. Can't help it. The natural reaction to this, now listen to this logic, the natural reaction to this is an underlying pride that it's actually God's fault. That He's not doing enough. He's not like waving His magic wand over me, right? That if we could just shed this body which plagues us, we would actually be able to deal with God on the basis of our personal merit, like the, my person disconnected from my body is actually pretty good. But this thing is the problem. That's not how it works. The whole self, the whole person has fallen. It's actually, that, that view of the spiritual life is actually the denial of our depravity and, an ult, and our ultimate need uh, to pursue God's grace every day, daily. And our responsibility to walk this out with Him. It is a very Gnostic, disconnected view of our spiritual nature. Look up that word Gnostic later and you'll, if you don't know it. It's an important word to know. We'll hear Christian leaders quoting Paul to avoid accusations of self-righteousness. And they'll say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. Right? And we might think, well, look, Paul wrote that. Paul wrote that, and even Paul was doomed to failure in the Christian life. Not even he could get past this putrid, sinful self because we're just equating this stuff with the body. Yes, Paul wrote those words. Yes, he wrote those words. And yes, he meant that. But it didn't mean that he had not grown in Christ's likeness to that point. It, that's not what it meant. Paul was not the same person when he wrote those words in 1 Timothy as the day he was knocked off the horse on the Damascus Road. He he had been changed. 
Christ had done a lot of work in Paul. It took him three years, I think it was, but from the time he was knocked off the horse until he started ministry, he was just soaking up Jesus. He also wrote words in Philippians 3 that say this, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, my old self, right, and, and straining towards what is ahead, Christ-likeness, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He also wrote uh, Philippians 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy, think about such things. He's pressing us to see our thoughts transformed and redeemed. But then he says in verse 9, whatever you have, heard, you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, he's setting himself up as the example, right? Put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Is that arrogant? Or is that being a good leader? So right there, and in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he also urges them to, to imitate him in spiritual formation. Follow my example, he says as I follow the example of Christ. He also admonishes people in 2 Timothy uh, 2, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So you don't direct in these ways, you don't press in these ways, and you don't urge people to emulate you and imitate you if true spiritual change isn't attainable and good. Or you feel helpless against your own physical flesh, your evil physical body. Paul ran the race well. The spiritual race well, the Christian life well. But it was a race to be uh, run, right? It was a race to be run. And in the spiritual life, one never gets to rest on their laurels. It's like having children. As soon as you break with the discipline, they take any crack in the system to exploit it, right? The evil little things, right? That's, the, that's like the Christian life. It's, it's actually much easier to keep it going. Right? And then you have a system that works, right? Where was I? <laughs> So you can't rest. You can't rest on your laurels. You can't rest on your accomplishments. You know what resting on your laurels means, right? When Greco-Roman games, they would give this prize of a laurel wreath around their head, and then they would lay back and rest on their laurels. That's, that's where we get the phrase, right? And, you know, but a resting athlete grows soft. They can't stay there. They've got to get up and train again, right? Just because they won run, one race doesn't mean they're going to win a next one if they don't keep training. The spiritual life is equivalent to the manna and quail God rained down from heaven in the, on the Israelites in, in, in the desert in Exodus 16. Every single morning and every single evening, they had to go out and gather their food. He was teaching them daily reliance on himself. The value of continual spiritual formation day in and day out and day in and day out. They couldn't gather more on one day, if you remember the story, and sit back and not uh, work the next day because the food would rot. God did that on purpose. He needed them to learn reliance. The spiritual life isn't something in which we coast. It's just not. I mean, weeks for weeks now, I've just been identifying spiritual attack 
on people. And it, it's just, Satan doesn't care, care if you had a good day. He's going to take, take you out. He's going to take your, your feet out from underneath you, right? So the spiritual life isn't something in which we coast along. It's just not. We deserve nothing from God. We, he owes us nothing. But he willingly makes his grace available to, every, to us every single day. It's the participatory life. It's up, us being involved with him. Paul took his Christian walk seriously, very seriously, knowing that he had and still could progress in Christ's likeness. He also knew that there was something within him which, if he allowed, could be fanned into flame and would overtake all the progress he had made. He could, he could, he could lose it, could walk, walk away from it. I'm not saying that you could lose your salvation. Don't misinterpret that statement. Mother Teresa had that in her too, right? But she did choose to walk with the Lord and fan into flame that which was of Jesus and not that of her sinful self. She made that choice. Hitler chose a different path. You've got to understand that. Both chose a path of spiritual formation, although both their paths were vastly different. But they chose it and they, they practiced it strongly. Paul liked this athletic metaphor. In 1 Corinthians 9, he outlines sort of his devotional life. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get that prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly, right? I do not fight like a boxer just beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So, Many of us can't relate to this athletic imagery since we've never run a marathon and we've never trained like that, right? Some of us can't even run to the mailbox, <laughs> right? We just, we just don't train like that in our everyday life and in other areas. Maybe we're, we're comfortable in spiritual mediocrity. May, or maybe we don't know any different. And you need a leader to tell you there's something different, Right? See, since Paul right here is talking about the contemplation part of 2 Corinthians 3.18, or, or Romans 12.1 and 2, in the submission, our submission to Christ, our active submission to Christ, and the nonconformity to the world of self-control, of active devotion, and active training in the Spirit. He competes against himself, doesn't he? He doesn't run aimlessly without direction. He doesn't beat the air against imaginary opponents out there. His fight is an internal fight in his own heart since he too is prone to self-worship. He puts his body into right perspective. Our bodies are good. They're worth redemptive training. With all their desires and all their thoughts, they need to be slaves to the growing Christian self, not the other way around. Husbands don't just look at porn. It's easy to truly, it it, it isn't easy to truly want change, right? An addiction to spiritual mediocrity. You, You go with what you see sometimes, right? 
or even to truly believe that, that transformation is possible because we don't see that many good examples maybe. As that man exclaimed in Mark 9, 24, I, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I, I want to, but I don't really do it, right? Sometimes we have to ask Jesus to make us want to change, right? To, to, to bring us into trust that we can be changed, right? That's important. I don't want to overload us this morning, right? So we're going to allow these thoughts to settle in our hearts. Change and transformation are possible in the Spirit. Jesus calls us into a deeper relationship with Him. Being in His presence, we gain His likeness and character. That is true. An ongoing process which we must engage with. Mother Mother Teresa, not Hitler. right? And next week we're going to look at three things to take us further. However, if I was going to leave you this morning with application, I'd ask you to prayerfully go back to the Lord and ask Him where your doubt and where your distrust is tied to human failure. Either by individuals or by whole systems. Ask the Holy Spirit to clarify what His truth is in these matters. Right? Teasing out and separating that the true Jesus from the deception of the human failure that we see. Tell Him you're jaded. Tell Him you want to believe, but you have a hard time believing. Right? Tell Him you want change, but you have a hard time desiring change. Ask Him to give you a heart of compassion for those who have been hurt by their... by, by Christians who have failed, and also a heart of compassion for those who have been hurt by it, right? Realize that we're all somewhat culpable in the systems that we create and perpetuate together, right? Furthermore, if you're living this lackluster, dichotomous lifestyle, you got one foot in, one foot out, you look, you know, like you look like you look today at the church, but you look at your Facebook and you're like a totally different person, right? With Jesus, right? Not taking any of this serious. Confess that today. Confess it. And maybe even confess it to another person. Ask for healthy conviction and direction to move forward towards the holiness to which God calls His people. Ask Him to work in your heart in these ways. Ask for it. Simply ask. Ask Him for a future image of what life would be like for you if you actually stepped out in 100% devotion towards Him, realizing that Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Submit, a submission sometimes precedes understanding. You may not understand everything that's going to happen to you, or, or all the que- you might not get all the questions answered that you want answered, but you submit to Him, you submit your whole self, your whole body, everything, and God moves you forward. And one day you say, ah, I understand. Or, ah, that wasn't that important for me to understand. Go up to prayer if you need to. Utilize the body. There's some pretty nice people in here that pray over you. Actually, they're all really nice, not just some. <laughs> they're all really nice people. We, we have them praying for you because they are, they are sincere, devoted people. They're not judgmental people, right? Memorize, meditate, and journal about 2 Corinthians 3.18 or Romans 12.1 and 2 this week. 
Bottom line is, start your day with Jesus in the Word of God. Have a quiet time, right? Gather your manna in the morning. Sit down, prayerfully talk with Him. Use the Scriptures. Let Him speak to you. Let Him challenge you, even if you don't understand it. My daughter said to me the other day, I read this whole book for like a class, and I didn't understand a thing. And I'm like, no, you did. You got something. You know, like, remember that in college? You're like, oh my God, ugh. And you'd like read it three times, you're like, I still don't get it. But then test time comes out, and you're like, oh, I did get something, you know? That's the way it is sometimes. And that's okay. Every morning, start your day gathering your manna, and then end every day in sort of a, a, a spiritual review of your day. Journal what happened to you that day, how you responded, how you saw life, what, what bothered you, what didn't bother you, what encouraged you. And then pray, pray to the Lord and ask Him to, to break that down and understand so you're gathering your quail at, quail at night, right? Gathering your man in the morning, gathering your quail at night. Let, let, give Jesus the time to speak into you. Amen. Let me, let me pray for us.